My brown dog is gray. Tomato juice is black. And color TV is hodgepodge. These are the words of Mr. I. At this time, a 65-year-old professional artist and painter who had suffered a devastating blow in an automobile accident. The repercussions of this event was severe colorblindness. See, this is the true story about how a man was literally blind to every color in the world's paint palette. A brain damaged in such a way it wouldn't allow the human eye to process red or blue or yellow or grass or the colors of spring or the shade of his wife's skin or brown dogs or red tomato juice. Now, this happening to anybody is just insanity, and this happening to an artist is colossal. To one day, think about it, to one day be living your life, and then in a single moment, a moment for Mr. I, in a single event, in an instant, you see the world in an entirely different shade. Your profession is different. Your relationships are different. Your hobbies are different. Your everything is different. Perhaps some of you have experienced a moment like this in your life, an instant, a time where from that point on, you saw everything differently, in a different color. For many, it's tragic. These moments can be tragic. And for others, many, it's celebratory. A birth of a loved one all the way to the death of a loved one. See, when these occurrences occur, our world is colored differently. Sometimes it lasts for months and other years, and for some it lasts until the end. See, for tonight's talk and for tonight's purposes, I'm calling what we just read in Acts, that instance, that moment, I'm calling it the crux, an unsolved question, a puzzling incident, a critical moment. See, it's a crash of sorts like Mr. Eyes where everything the disciples saw changed color forever. Their professions are different. Their relationships are different. Their purposes and their everything is painted differently. All because there was a shift. There was a crux. The Bible shows us that in these 11 verses that that crux was the ascension of Jesus Christ. It was a moment, it was an event so powerful that not a single follower of Jesus in the book of Acts or today will ever be the same again. Now, even that idea I was thinking is this vertebrae in the spine or in the backbone of what the book of Acts is trying to accomplish. Imperfect humans, simple people following Jesus, radically transformed, and then we witness and ask the, the, the ordinary, participate in the extraordinary. We get to watch in this moment for the disciples, and hopefully for some even here tonight, something click. The ball drop, the fuse gets lit, and the color changes in their lives forever. Now, it's fascinating, to me at least, this instance, this crux, is happening in the most unlikely way that being the ascension of Jesus Christ. See, the ascension, it's this biblical doctrine that has been treated a bit passively in the heart of the universal church. 
an event in the life of Jesus that for far too long in certain circles has been undervalued, forgotten, poorly applied. Now, please hear me. Don't, don't think I'm saying I'm the doctrine of ascension's knight in shining armor. But I would desire for us as a church, for those who are curious about faith and Jesus and the Bible, to have a clear understanding of its implications in, in our everyday. How its reason is still ringing true as it was then. Because to be struck by the ascension is to never see things the same way again. But first, if I may for a moment, address something. After reading these verses, I just kind of want to poke the giant elephant in the room. I would just want to come out and say that the ascension is a bit weird, right? It's a bit weird. These, this is a very seemingly odd set of verses. Simply the ascension, and dare I say, and here the, I'll explain it, it's a bit hokey. I mean, it stands out compared to some of the major uh, events in the life of Jesus. Think about it. There's, there's the incarnation, which is the story of Jesus being born into the world, and it's this seasonal tale with beauty and barn animals. So it kind of gets a break, especially when you throw Nog and like Hallmark ornaments in there. Everybody's like, okay, I'll, I'm cool with that. There's the cross, which is powerful, atonement, sacrifice, and Good Friday, and substitution. There's the resurrection. We have Easter Sunday and peeps and the Lord is risen and he's defeating death. He's punching the grim reaper right in the face. Then there's the ascension. Jesus is hanging with his homies and then he floats away. Some angels appear in like bleached clothes and they're like, what are you doing? Go, get out of here. And that's the ascension. Like, I, what are we to make of this? How can its implications really be all that as transformative as I'm promising that they really are? For those here who may not proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, maybe you're hearing this and you're reading all this and you're going, this is silly. This is silly. Christian, maybe you're reading all this and go, I'm cool with most of the stuff in the Bible, but this ascension, well, for all of us, believer and unbeliever alike, our temptation due to the story, the historical facts, unusualness, could be to read this as an, as an idle tale. It's fanciful. The story's outlandish. But what these verses do is bring all of us to a place to ask an important question. That being, can this be real? Did Jesus ascend to the heavens? And what does that mean for me? Because if it isn't real, and if he didn't, then you have no point to being here. Then the Christian's faith is misguided, right? The church is a scam, and the book of Acts is, you know, fiction. But if this is real, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, if Jesus is bodily there, if it's as John Duncan said, that, the, that Christ is the dust of the earth, is on the throne of the majesty on high this is real, then Acts isn't fiction. If the ascension is real, as these verses say it is, wouldn't that change everything? I think we'd see colors change. I think we'd start seeing brown dogs gray. 
We would never look at anything the same way again. So because of that, because of the eternal and existential weight, let's today get our shovels out and dig up what all of this means. Now, since it's a very deep doctrine, we don't have uh, you know, lots of time to go to every depth and length of it, of the ascension, but I'll do my best in the allotted time to get you guys out of here in a few hours. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. We got a long night. <laughs> joking. Our set of verses has been perfectly broken down by the Holy Spirit into three alliterated sections. We have the presentation, we're going to be going over the promise, and we have the purpose. The presentation, the promise, and the purpose. Luke, the physician, our detailed author of Acts, presents Jesus alive. We have to know that the book of Acts is catapulted by the resurrection of the living Jesus, of the living Jesus. Luke presents the facts that Christ, after rising from the dead, hangs out for about 40 days and chilling with about 500 people seeing him. Now, he could have just been risen from the dead, high-fived some people, did some air guns on the way up, and that would have been fine. And everybody would be like, cool, yeah, that makes sense. But he takes time. Why? He takes time to be with his people to make sure that the first domino of sorts is positioned and ready. Jesus sort of detonates everything in this transition period that is about to come. See, Luke presents the ascension as the thread that ties his two accounts together, his two books together. It's the ascension that he ends with in his gospel, and it's the ascension that he begins with in the book of Acts. The ascension is the vice between them. It's the the Chinese finger trap between his two books. So all that to say, clearly our author is saying, do not miss this. I wrote it twice. Do not miss this, Luke is telling us. Jesus has something we must see and something we must hear. Look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Pay attention to this because this is huge. For us today. Out of all the things that Jesus could have been speaking on when he comes back, the how-tos on making disciples or how to start a church and church governance, the suffering or the persecuted church, five easy ways to perform miracles, what death is like, all these things he could have been talking about, what does he do? He goes back to the thing he has been saying all along. I've been saying this. You remember this? I've been saying it. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Jesus reminds his followers, again, I've been talking about this from the beginning. Look at verse 4. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he says, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, he's pointing back to his first days of ministry. He's like, you remember John the Baptist, my cuz cuz? Do you guys remember him? He was a man in the Gospels who was the first prophet in the New Testament after waiting all of these years, after hundreds of years. He called the people to repent. He called the people to turn from the rebellion, to be immersed in water. And if you remember what John the Baptist said as he preached, what did he say? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Here we have Jesus saying, you've heard this stuff before. But now he says, but instead of being immersed by water, he's telling his disciples, you are this close. 
to being, being immersed by fire, by the Holy Spirit. I'm excited to say that, just so you guys know, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be starting, you know, about three weeks in the Holy Spirit and His presence and power and personhood. But in tonight, we're just going to look at the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we're going in depth in a couple weeks to come. See, where Jesus ascends, he's saying, he explains that the Spirit will descend. The Spirit is poured out from the throne of God on all citizens who make up the kingdom of God. Now, before we go any further, maybe you're asking, what is the kingdom of God? What exactly is it? Is it a castle with a moat? Is it an Orlando Bloom, Liam Neeson movie? What is it? First, friends, I want you to be comforted. Even the disciples of Jesus, after hearing about it for three years, are still puzzled. These disciples, Christ's closest amigos, are, are disillusioned. See, not about a kingdom coming in power, but they're disillusioned about its purpose. Not about a kingdom where Jesus reigns, but about a kingdom where Jesus reigns in love and in service and in mercy. Basically, the disciples don't get it. They're not getting it. Thus, the need for Jesus to constantly what? Preach it, teach it, speak on it, keynote it, TED Talk it, tweet it, whatever. And after all that, the disciples ask one question. The only thing they say in these 11 verses, and what is it? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Will you restore the kingdom you know, to Israel? See, the kingdom that they have been passionate about and dying for looks very different than the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. The disciples are lost, pay close attention, the disciples are lost at sea in the murky waters of expectation. Jesus, we're expecting a full restoration of political power. Jesus, I expected this, and I'm not seeing it. Jesus, I expected this, and we're still waiting. Now, I think we all could probably agree there are um, truckloads of heartache that come with wrongful or bad or unneeded, or misplaced, or too large of, or too small love expectations. I'll never forget when we spoke with people, Lorenzo was alluding to, we've been meeting with people for 13 months. We've been telling them about this church plant. The one thing we've been saying constantly is, do not have a single expectation, other than we're going to let you down. This church is going to fail you somehow. For me personally, 99% of of problems in my marriage are my wife's expectations. That was a joke. (laughs) I expected her to laugh, and she's not, see? In all seriousness, all the problems are my expectations, and then if they don't go my way, I become a toddler and a tiara, and it's a big problem. Expectations within a relationship with God are painful as well. God, I expected you to intervene in this way. God, I expected you to move in this way, to answer this way. God, I expected this to be different. God, I expect you to pick up the pace. God, I expect you to slow down, to give, to take, to bless, to curse. See, like the disciples, it's so easy for us to forget that we are the ones with limited perspective. 
God sees the whole, we, we see the portion. Has anybody who's in here ever read um, Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations, like back in high school? The tale of a young boy named Pip who experiences life with what? Great expectations. And Pip expected wealth, and it would bring happiness. And Pip expected to marry Estella and inherit a fortune. And this Pip character expected his lawyers and his friends and his mentors to come through. And these expectations, if you remember in the book, came at a cost. His emotional and moral decline. You see chapters of his soul deteriorating. And with each growing chapter, his character is growing grim and more and more broken. Friends, if expectations are not managed, if not corrected when thinking about God, they will damage us. Now, don't get me wrong. We can have high expectations of our mighty God. We can have high expectations. God will be present and move in every situation. God will take ruins and make it something praiseworthy. See, but we must be aware of not of too high of expectations, but of too narrow of expectations. See, the ascension not only points out the too narrow of expectations of the disciples, but it dramatically alters them forever. Jesus desires his people to spread the word about a kingdom, not of political upheaval. A kingdom of forgiveness is what he wants, what he wants his, his citizens to spread. A kingdom where outcasts are welcome. A kingdom where hurt feels safe. A kingdom where the undeserving are loved. A kingdom where the last are first and the greatest are servants, where death is life and true life is dying to self. A kingdom you cannot find on the maps, but in the hearts and lives of every Jesus follower. Jesus wants the world to know about his kingdom, and he commissions his citizens to herald it. Jesus wants his followers to carry the kingdom to the world. This is a beautiful moment. Please pick up on this. This is radical. See, where the disciples ask, Jesus, will you do this? What does Jesus do to them? Jesus essentially turns it on them and asks, no, 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 no. Will you do this? Will you do this? What does verse 8 say? Look down at verse 8. But you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I was speaking with a friend of, another nerdy friend of mine earlier this week, and he reminded me of that great moment in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf and, and Elrond are, are going at it, and the eye is fixed, the betrayal is happening, evil's afoot, and they don't know what to do. And Gandalf suggests the unthinkable. Does anybody remember? He suggests the unthinkable, and he says, and I quote, We must place our hope in men. We must place our hope in men. Friends, get this. This is epic. Jesus hands over the work to be done, the mission, the job at hand to you. To me, to the disciples, that is a crazy thought. See, the gospel of Luke is all about what Jesus began to do, and the Acts is all about what he continues to do through man, through you, and through me. Christians, I hope this rocks you. I really hope it rocks you. It rocks me. Christ is asking 
us to be his representatives, his portrayals, his witness to everyone we encounter. To go beyond saying, I love you, and embodying a love so deep, a love so sacrificial, a love so pure, that the people you encounter can't help but ask the question, what's the deal? You're different. You're very different. Can I challenge you for a moment more? Is this set of you, what's the deal? Is this set of you in your home, in the studio, in the office, in the classroom, by our kids, by our spouse? Let's take it even a step further. Christ has called, I hope we get this, Christ has called us to be his witness to the world. So when people come in contact with you, they are to witness the ascended King Jesus. They come in contact with you, and they come in contact with me, they are to witness the ascended King Jesus. Just as Christ, and this is beautiful, is our witness to the Father in heaven. This is Christ is our witness. We are his witness to our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. I read this and I'm very quickly reminded of how easily I fall short of this every day. If you catch me on a bad day, you may come in contact with and witness a Jesus who rushes through conversations. You catch me on a rough day, you may come in contact with the Jesus who is very boorish and a bit rash and loud, or an uncompassionate Jesus, a transactional Jesus where I want something out of you, or you could even witness a lazy Jesus. See, what Jesus are the people of your zones witnessing on a day-to-day basis? Church, it's so humbling that we get to preach the words of Jesus, that we get to love with the compassion of Jesus, we get to serve with the humility of Jesus, and we get to pray in the name of Jesus. To to take people who are in financial, relational, vocational, and sexual brokenness to the throne of God. We're part of taking people straight to the throne. Our commission is beautiful. Our job that we have that Jesus has given us is beautiful. We're not taking people to the outer gates, just wait here. We're taking people, because of the finishing work of Jesus on the cross, we usher them in to the throne room of Jesus Christ. For them to behold the one one true Jesus. And all of that is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. A promise of power. The Bible says a power will come upon you. You'll be able to carry this task to the ends of the earth by a type of power. The kingdom will be established, as British theologian and Pastor John Stott says, by witness, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the, and by, by the work of the Holy Spirit, not by the force of arms. You see, even this idea of power is just as different as the idea of kingdom. God's kingdom and God's power is nothing like this world has ever seen. From the ascension where the kingdom's fuse was lit until day, it's fully realized that Christ's return, you and I have a job to do. Believers and, and unbelievers here today, here is the purpose of the ascension. Here it is right here. Jesus was ascended and was taken up. Look at verse 9. And we had said these things as they were looking on him. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. But this ascent is an ascent of a king taking his throne. The book of Psalms in the Old Testament, it asks this very prophetic question. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? 
he, that being King Jesus, with clean hands and a pure heart. And I love this. Psalm 24 goes on to For the disciples, it was upon seeing this, it was upon experiencing this, this that the disciples, uh, that all followers of Jesus will, will never be the same again. All color changes at this very moment. Why? Because King Jesus reigns. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. It's upon knowing this truth that everything transforms. This is our archetype. We explained last week that, the, that these archetypes are our forever truths which produce multiple different outcomes in the lives and circumstances of those knowing and experiencing our archetypal truth. This is our truth. Jesus, who experienced temptations, who experienced humanity, who experienced flesh, is now at the throne. The dust of the earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. See, this archetype crosses all borders and ages and nationalities and genres. To take this archetype, which is the one core truth and symbol, and watch how it affects every inch of who you are. Friends, what would our lives look like if Jesus was our king? What would the west side be like if Jesus was in all authority over it? How would our lives be governed if Christ was on the throne of every decision, choice, moment, the way we spent money, the way we talked with our friends, the way we talked with our enemies, the way we viewed church, the way we viewed serving, the way we gave, the way we sang. Our day-to-day looks very, very different depending on who's reigning in our life. The kingdom in the very generic sense is simply where something reigns. Something reigns. The kingdom is where something reigns. Now, if that's true, what reigns in and over our life? Is it the thoughts and opinions of others? Are you driven by fear of failure? Is it the pain from the past or obsession with the future? Is it him? Is it her? Is it titles and reputations? Are we the king and queen of the castle of autonomy, of individuality, Something reigns over each and every one of us. But it's only when King Jesus reigns that we have the ability to face the everyday. I remember trying to live my life as my own king before I knew King Jesus. And every heartbreak, and every ill word spoken, and every point of pain shook my world. It cracked my foundation, and it slashed my identity. It was only when Jesus was king of my life that I could bear those things with intact purpose and hope. See, we may not have all the answers to life questions. We may have our expectations torn apart. We may have a limited perspective. The church and the world right now may suffer horrific persecution. But all of that, hear the way I'm saying this, all of that is okay because of who is on the throne because of what will be redeemed, because of who is king of this world. See, Satan may be prince of the earth, but Jesus is king of heaven and earth. Verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven, 
as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So I end with this. Take this truth and live. Take this idea of King Jesus and live. Work. Witness. Love in this life. The angels are busting the disciples for being passive stargazers, just waiting. He says, you're not to be stargazing. You're to be my active witnesses. These angelic beings are telling the followers of Jesus, essentially, you're not astronomers. You're, my, you're Jesus' ambassadors. He says, stop looking up and start looking out. There is work to be done. I love how the gospel of Luke ends, about, uh, ends its gospel about the ascension. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them. He was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. See, there is great peace to be had. There is great hope to be had. And there is great joy to be had for those who live their lives with Jesus as king.